Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. We're online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. And I'm joined by my co-host, Amber Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you, and welcome to all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. We have a fantastic show lined up for today. We'll be starting with the People's Uprising in Sri Lanka and their Occupy-style encampments. We'll also look at the latest round of homeless sweeps that took place in Lower Manhattan this morning and one local resident's response to the homelessness crisis when it arrived on her doorstep. And in our third segment, we'll have the latest on the struggle for control of New York State's highest court that has erupted since last week's unexpected resignation of Chief Justice Janice DeFiori. But first, we start with Sri Lanka, the tier teardrop-shaped island nation of 23 million people located just south of India. The country has been in the throes of an economic meltdown. A mass protest movement erupted in April, and on July 10th, thousands of demonstrators took over the presidential palace. They sent the country's leader, Gotabaya Rajapashka, fleeing into exile. In now iconic images, the protesters were seen taking selfies on the president's canopied bed and splashing in his private swimming pool. The Indies Gagarian has been following this story and was in touch with Sri Lankan protesters in the capital city of Colombo as recently as this morning. Amba, what have you learned? Well, John, that's right. I've been in touch with people for the past uh, three days or so, and this is the first time I've interviewed people who are really right in the middle of this kind of massive countrywide uprising, which is extremely exciting, honestly, and inspiring. But there's also a lot of uncertainty about what comes next. Um, we'll talk about all of that, but first let's go to some footage I have from some of the people I've spoken with, Yathev Bala, who is a medical student in Colombo, we hear from first. Then we'll hear some sound from the presidential palace and people swimming in the pools there. And the second person we'll hear from is Hiran Yada, a young university lecturer and protester. <laughs> Okay. So uh, the Rajapakshas who came into power, actually, uh, it was more like a family rule. Uh-huh. They had all their families into power. Yeah. All the, basically, the entire family was in power. So, uh, you know, like corruption is at its highest peak when you have an entire family ruling over and taking up most of the major posts in the government. People do have a treasure, right? Yeah. So they, they lost it when, you know, like, when all the people, like this, you know, you name the classes, all the people from all the social classes were equally affected by this. Right. Crisis. So that, yeah, so it, it, there was no, you know, defense from the people who got into the, onto the roads because the poor, the rich, you know, the educated, the uneducated, all of them got onto the streets because they couldn't take it anymore. Wow. There were doctors on the streets, there were engineers on the streets, there were trivial drivers on the streets, there were fishermen on the streets because the crisis just affected everyone equally. Whether they had money or not, there were still no products in this country. See, the Sri Lankans are not really dumb. And this this moment had almost, as I said, told you, like all the educated and uneducated people were there. The lawyers were there on, as frontliners. The priests the, the, the churches were there. 
So the nuns were there on the front line. Right. So uh, basically, what I'm trying to tell you is like you know they made sure that this struggle was always peaceful. The news spread throughout the country, and people were asked to come gather on the 9th of July to show them that you know it's three months and we are still wanting them to leave. Okay, got it. And, and yeah, so this we thought would not be practically possible because you know three months later people are still having to like move on with their lives because they need to find money for their families. Right. But surprisingly, the entire country was there on July 9th. Wow! They gathered outside the Colombo uh, presidential secretariat, and that crowd was massive. The day, you know, all the railway stations were filled with people. Wow! So if you like, actually Google, you'll see people coming into Colombo from various parts of Sri Lanka through buses, through, and this was during an economic crisis which had no petrol. There is no fuel. In any of these petrol stations, but you know the the railway uh, association decided to run the trains from other parts of the country to Colombo to show their support. So this is basically it's 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 what just like the, what the name name says. It's a it's a people struggle. People decided you know go to hell with this. We are doing this. This is for the people. Cops who yeah there were, there were cops who came onto the side of the people like in nice. the middle of this protest. They just you know throw away everything that they had and they'll. Just start walking around with the people. Something very interesting I experienced in the first few days uh, was that. Uh, so I mean, when you do go around, like cat calling is such a thing. Like this becomes such. And the first few days, I didn't like me and like a lot of friends also noticed that we didn't get cat called at all, which was like really weird. Nice. We thought like, wow, is this really the world we are? You know, trying to like create, which is amazing. Right. So those were sounds of the Sri Lankan uprising. First, you heard protesters jumping into the the pool at the presidential palace, uh, and then at the end, we heard from Hira Nyada, and she was talking about the lack of catcalling in the occupation sites, which um, we'll talk a lot about um, soon. But basically, just for some context, since 2022, the country has experienced an intense economic crisis, which most of the people blame on the Rajapaksha regime, regime which you heard um, Yatev speaking about earlier, and, and this regime's thoughtless programs, such as lifting taxes on the rich without planning any other source of revenue, um, making all of the farmers change to organize it, organic fertilizer, quite literally overnight, which resulted in a very major crop loss, um, a major misuse of funds from international sources, and a fuel shortage as a result of all of this, and also notably the Russia-Ukraine war, which has resulted in 10 to 12-hour day um 10 to 12 hour power outages a day. Um, and this was the sort of situation, you know, uh, in the early part of 2022 and leading up to mid-April when the protests really exploded and um, a an encampment in the capital of Colombo um, formed. And you'll see in the videos um, of the Sri Lankans not only jumping in the pool, but kind of wandering about the house, um, you'll see them scrutinizing the luxuries in this mansion, really comparing that air conditioned space to their hot, often dark homes. Right. Now, can you tell us more about the organizing that is going on the, the ground right now, including these uh, 24-7 occupy, 
occupy style encampments that have been set up in all corners of the country and not just in the capital city? Right, absolutely. So um, the first occupation, as I just said, uh, started um, or formed um, in mid-April uh, when these protests started to really kick off. The people, as you heard uh, um, um, Yatev say, the people have a threshold. So that's when the threshold was broken. Um, and people, um, you know, fed into Colombo and started having these protests. And it's funny because uh, Gotayaba Rajapashka, who was still the um, prime minister and the president, sorry, at the time, actually created this this area in Colombo for protests. And the people were like, F that. And they overtook it and created this village, this occupation that many who are listening, who have participated in the occupation at City Hall or Abolition Park or in uh, the obviously the Occupy occupation of of 2011, um, you will. It, it sounds from from speaking to the people that I spoke with who have been there at the encampment, it sounds very similar. You have people's libraries. You have food coming in, being donated from all sources. You have huge protest signs from all these different factions. Um, education, music, planning, and these are called Gota Go Gamas. And so Gota Go means Gota Get Out. Gota Yaba, the, the the president who fled, and Gama is a village. So there's one principal one there. And it's interesting, the, the one I've been speaking about is the principal one. It's actually on right next to, um, it's called the Gale Face Stretch. And it's a piece of land that that China just took a 99-year lease out on to uh, uh, build, you know, hotels and, and development and, and also do trade. So obviously, this is, a, this is a stance from the protesters to be right there. But that's not the only one. There's another large one in Colombo, the capital, as well as all over Sri Lanka. So many towns have these Gota Gogamas and people, it's like people can participate in this pretty much, you know, nonviolent method of protest in these outposts all around the country. Not only that, for each prov- of the 24 provinces, there are different, um, they call them telegram groups, but communication groups that handle the communication all around the country of the protesters. Um, so it's, it's quite That's inspiring. Yeah. And, and people find the solutions uh, that they need. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit more about this movement? It, I understand it has many different components. And also, uh, what are the choices the country faces uh, moving forward? Right. Okay. So the it is really a mass people's movement. It is called the Aratalaya, which means a mass people's movement. Again, you heard our speakers say that there are people from literally every sect of society out there. The cops, some cops have even abandoned post. So that's really a beautiful and what is needed, um, I think, for a power change in a country. But uh, within, for example, the main Gota Gogama, the main occupation, um, there are tons of factions, right, of different groups, everything from pro-military to anti-military to um, socialists to neoliberals, uh, uh, LGBTQ groups, all these ethnic groups, right? I mean, there's the Tamil people who face a genocide. There is uh, many Buddhists in Sri Lanka. So there's a lot of <laughs> ethnic um, sort of conflict going on. So there's people from really sort of every faction. I think the main people sort of, doing some of protest mechanism has been socialist student groups and groups on the left. 
that for a long have been fighting for um, free education to maintain free education in Sri Lanka for a long time. And we're seeing what I've understand from talking to all people I've spoken to is that in general, those leftist student protesters have been seen as a nuisance in recent years. And now the general public is actually giving them much credit because they're realizing that they're the ones who have protest tactics and know how to deal with tear gas and all of this stuff. So, um, but what that means for the country is, uh, is very unknown, actually. So there's the interim president right now who was, um, very close with the Rajapaksha family. And he's one of three uh, candidates that will be voted on tomorrow for a potentially two-year inter- interim presidential um, period. None of the candidates, the two prominent candidates, are both supported by the Rajapaksha family associates, essentially. So real protesters who want a ton of change don't have much faith in this. Everyone is holding their breath to see what's going to happen tomorrow. Will there be another huge protest at the encampment Um We'll see. Follow up with us. I'm gonna. We're gonna be putting together a story in our upcoming issue of the Independent. So uh, we are really excited to uh, hear what's what's going to be happening there. Right. Well, we're, we're glad that you're following the story, Amba. And uh, we're gonna take a short music break here, and when we come back, uh, we'll uh, have some coverage from on the ground here in New York, where the mayor tried to launch some more uh, anti-homeless sweeps uh, this morning. That was a Tamil singer-songwriter activist named Arivu and the Ambasa band singing a song called K Lankar, which is actually a protest song. And this is a protest rapper. And he wrote this song when the people of Sri Lanka went into the streets um, in April. And the lyrics quickly are, people of Sri Lanka, march on and agitate for saving your country and home. Agitate, protest, agitate, protest, etc. So once again, you are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM, your listener sponsor community radio station. And for our second segment, we are going to turn back to New York City, where Mayor Eric Adams has made homeless sweeps one of the defining features of his administration. The sweeps often end with people's few worldly possessions being tossed in the back of a garbage truck. The city was added again this morning. It dismantled a couple of encampments by the Manhattan Bridge. It also planned to oust a homeless encampment in Sarah Roosevelt Park at the intersection of Forsyth and Canal Streets, but they were thwarted when it discovered that their paperwork was not in order. The Independence Yastika Guru was on hand and we'll have more coverage from her up on independent.org tomorrow. One neighborhood resident she spoke with was Isabel, who was who sought to aid the homeless men instead of looking away or trying to involve the police. Isabel now joins us to talk about how she's chosen to respond to homelessness in her community. Isabel, we're very happy to have you here. Welcome to the show. 
I think you're muted, Isabel. It's okay. Um, I'm um, once again. Okay, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear okay. you. All right, there we go. Um, I'm happy to be here too. Um, I basically, you want me to talk a little bit about how, why or how I even got involved in in doing supporting? Yeah, absolutely. So just tell us how you came to know the homeless men who were sleeping on the sidewalk outside of the building last winter, and then why you decided to sort of get involved with and assist them instead of turning your back and maybe hoping the police would sweep them away. Um, So basically, I want to say that I'm immensely grateful to Black organizers and activists that I've met in 2020 during the protests. I got involved with doing some bike safety for protests, and through that experience, uh, learned and understood that safety can exist without police um, and also learned about what is abolition, what is what can transformative justice look like, what does mutual aid look like. And um, I live in Chinatown and there was a scaffolding around my building and there was a few unhoused residents who um, were living downstairs. And uh, I remember in back in March when uh, it must have been one of the first sweeps that they experienced and I just looked out my window and I could here I could hear the uh, garbage truck idling, and um, for a while, so I, I looked, and then I heard the the neighbors yelling and screaming and saying, "Please don't throw our things away! Please don't throw our things away!" And I witnessed the Department of Sanitation throw um, suitcases, blankets, clothing, um, just their personal belongings, and it brought me to tears because I felt it was really violent, and um, I was upset because I didn't know how to help them. Um, and then I found out that there was other people doing sweep defense, um, just, you know, through Instagram, but also through some of the community that had um, previously from the protests. And um, so I think that this must have been in early April when there was another sweep and I, I still didn't really know what to do. And I saw there were some people helping them. So I just got dressed and went downstairs and then uh, just realized that it wasn't that complicated to help people. It was just asking, what do you need? Okay, you need your belongings moved down the street, or you might need uh, food, or you might need um, other assistance. Um, you know, like maybe you want to go to a shelter, maybe you don't. Like whatever the need is for the resident. So I just... Um, I guess I kept doing it because I felt by myself when I saw it happen, I felt really powerless. But once I knew other people were doing it, it really gave me a lot of hope to be part of a change that I believe in and that I learned about in 2020. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's one particular couple of neighbors that they have now moved, um, down the street from me. And so I still go check in with them and help them with certain things. But um, I'm really um, excited today to share that, that, that this is something I do and it's not that complicated. Um, right. And, mm-hmm. and, and uh, can you talk a little bit more um, uh, about uh, some re- recent uh, activities you, you were involved with where uh, you worked with some of your neighbors, including a, a shop owner, uh, to address the situation in, in which uh, the shop owner didn't necessarily want uh, people sleeping in front of his shop, but you all found a, a way to deal with this that didn't involve involving, it didn't involve bringing the police into it. Yeah. And um, this is an instance that happened actually about, I want to say a week ago. So um, 
these particular residents, they had experienced um, several sweeps in July, July 3rd, 5th, 7th, 12th, 16th, and then today. Um, there's another one scheduled for the 22nd. So that, you know, including the 22nd, that would be seven sweeps. And so they had been swept from one side of Canal Street to the other side um, because the police basically just wants to move them. And if they go a block away, there's nothing they can do about it. So this shop owner had actually turned towards the residents compassionately and said, oh, can you please not obstruct the access to the basement? Can you, you know, how long are you going to be here? Just a few days is okay. But, you know, I, I want to be compassionate, but I'm also running a business. And so I had met him and said that I was supporting them and, and trying to help in several endeavors, including trying to get a storage unit and minimizing some of their belongings. And um, he said, well, you know, my patients will only go so far. And um, if they don't leave in a few days or if they don't leave by tomorrow, then I'll call the cops. And I said, will that be effective? And I said, what about I give you my phone number and you call me instead? Because I can't promise I can make happen what you need, but I can come down here and they have a relationship with me. And the next morning he called me and he says, oh, you know, can you come down um, and talk to them? There are some of their bags are on one of the areas that he didn't want it to be so I came down and then went to the store later and said hey just wanted to let you know I was here and we sorted it out and they thanked me and they seemed compassionate and I really liked the experience of being a community with other people and and not ignoring it but but um stepping up and saying how can we solve this you know calling the police is not solving it so it seems seems like just elaborate a little bit more on on how those 2020 protests uh, really sort of uh, changed your, your thinking about the role of police and community? Um, just learning about uh, the violence and the police violence, the oppression, particularly of black people in this country and um, being in community with people who had similar values like other protesters. And, and so I, I joined a group that particularly would do bike support. So we'd go in the front and the back and, you know, on every protest, there'd be a rally. And so there'd be black organizers speaking and they would be speaking of alternative ways of living, of alternative ways of being in community, um, such as, uh, you know, what does it mean to have, um, to practice transformative justice instead of carceral justice? Or uh, what does mutual aid mean? What does it mean to keep us safe? You know, like who keeps us really safe? What does it mean? So just seeing in action um, what these these black organizers and 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 um, activists uh, had been doing for a long time and just learning from them and seeing that our world is really, really broken and that there is a different way. And that's what it really means to me. Our relation to me really means, um, you know, creating a world that um, takes care of everybody and, and creating equity. And so that directly translates for me into um, treating my unhoused neighbors as neighbors. And of course, being, you know, mindful of, of people I don't know, but just saying these are people that live where I live and how, how can we help each other? So you've kind of had the chance to live out your abolitionist beliefs and make a difference right where you are. Yeah. And sometimes the difference, like what I do, it feels very small and I go home and I feel upset, but it's 
really the small things and the people I meet and seeing that there's, there's other people out there. And I'm hoping that there's people listening, you know, that, that being in community with your neighbors, whether they're housed or not, like is possible. And um, it's not us against them. We're all, we're all in this world. They're, you know, they're not, they're just humans like, like I am. Exactly. And, and on that note, you know, um, you know, uh, myself and the Indian general has worked a lot with um, homeless communities um, in our coverage. It's something we try to highlight. Uh, talk a little bit about the difference between what maybe society, general society sees in a homeless person, which is someone who's been cut out of it, and then the reality of the wisdom that many homeless people, especially in New York, have about the city, its history, and its residents. I mean, I can speak for myself. I know before I started having a relationship with these specific unhoused neighbors, uh, I would maybe be afraid of them because they don't look clean often or sometimes, or I don't know them and I don't know what their situation is. And they're just, you know, portrayed in this, this story as that they're criminals or they're scary. So I, I had to unlearn that just because someone's living, know their story and ask questions you know, and, and learn and ask questions again and learn and just observe and see. And uh, my experience has been that, uh, that, like what you're saying, the wisdom, like, like some of the ways that I've met people that are unhoused, how they communicate, what they know about life, how accepting they are, but still they have to have hope, you know, and even little pockets of humor and um, just, really um exceptional in the way that people are honest i think and accepting you know that could be a situation where someone might ask me can you get this for me and i might say no because i can't i don't find that people give me pushback oh please oh please nagging this that no nothing they they respect that i give what i can and i wish that the general population was more like that right and before we uh, go here in a minute are there any uh, resources you want to point people to uh, in terms of uh, mutual aid or other um, resources or, um, that you're aware of? Yes, there's a, a few places that I'd like to plug in. There's um, Washington Square Park Mutual Aid, which happens every Friday from 5 to 8. Um, it's a place where you can get free food and free clothing. Um, their Instagram is at WSPMA. Um, they also accept donations. Like if, for example, someone isn't able to be actively on the ground. Um, when I sometimes buy my unhoused neighbor a meal, I can get reimbursed. So like it's, it helps people on the ground to do the work that we're doing. So I highly recommend following them. They're also are going to have an upcoming event on uh, training for defense, sweep defense which like I described, it's not that complicated. So follow them on Instagram. Another Instagram that I like is at sweep alert NYC. They are on Instagram and Twitter. Um, if you notice a sweep notice being posted near um, the encampment of your unhoused neighbors, I recommend ask the unhoused neighbors what they want, if they consent to uh, sharing it publicly so that they can get su- uh, support through sweep defense. Um, take a picture of the note and then, you know, contact them and say, these are the kinds of requests that your unhoused neighbors ha- have. Um, and then a third one is at rent refusers, also on Instagram. And, and these are all Instagrams that 
you know, inform you of ongoing sweeps, but also, you know, I learned so much from them of little resources they share, um, what to do, what not to do, what's helpful, who's doing what. Um, yeah. And, and like I said, you know, there probably is people in your neighborhood already. Like I've talked to numerous of my neighbors. People do little things, but people don't talk about it. And I really think talk to your friends, talk to your neighbors and see who else is, is aligned with doing this work and just do it together because it's hard alone. Right. Well, Isabel, we thank you for coming on the show this evening to talk with uh, with us and all of our listeners here in the New York City region about your experiences. And uh, uh, we wish you all the best and and, uh, continue to follow what's uh, going on with those uh, homeless sweeps uh, in your area. Thank you. Okay. We'll be back after a short break. You are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI uh, 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, uh, editor of The Independent, also here with uh, uh, co-host Amber Gagarian. And uh, we want before we go to our next uh, segment, uh, we want to uh, uh, encourage everyone who can do so to give to this station, to WBAI, uh, that makes it possible for us to bring on all the different voices you you hear throughout the day, uh, voices like Isabel, uh, vo- voices that we heard from the uprising in Sri Lanka earlier in the show, and uh, our next guest who's going to uh, help us understand what's going on with uh, New York's uh, most powerful court and the power struggle that's uh, going on there, and uh, all the other shows you hear throughout the day, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, WBAI brings you uh, political and uh, uh, events, current affairs, 
news, cultural programming, a unique station. There's no corporate sponsors. There's no uh, big oil or uh, weapons makers uh, uh, sponsoring uh, segments like you might hear on uh, NPR. Uh, this is a people's radio station, WBAI uh, 99.5 FM. You can call 212-209-2950 or give number 2, WBAI.org. And you can call 212-209-2950 or give the number 2, WBAI.org to make a donation one time reoccurring to WBAI, your favorite independent local radio that has been on the airwaves in and around New York City since 1967, people, 1967. Your parents may have listened. Your grandparents may have listened and loved BAI pre-pandemic. Um we had musical artists in the station all the time, people coming in and out of the station. It was a lively community space. BII is not only a radio station, it is a community and a stronghold of independent media, which is ever, ever important in this moment. So please call 212-209-2950 or go online to give the number 2, WBAI.org. That's 212-209-2950 or go online to give the number 2, WBAI.org to donate to this bastion of uh, truth here in New York City. and um, Right. And when you give, so what are you giving for? Well, you help the station pay the rent at, for its antenna and transmitter at four times square, the skyscraper right in the middle of Manhattan. That, ena- that enables us to beam the signal all across the five boroughs into Westchester County, Long Island, uh, uh, New Jersey. Uh, and we have this powerful signal but we have to be able to pay the rent and it costs $17,000 a month because real estate you know, ain't cheap here in New York. Uh, we, w- we wish we didn't have to pay $17,000 a month, but that's, uh, that's what it is. And uh, we, when you make that contribution of 15, 25, 50, a hundred dollars, maybe 200 or 500, if you've got a little extra change, you're keeping this signal beaming every day. And, uh, you know, it, if if our listeners stop giving, we might have to stop broadcasting. It's just that stark. And uh, we've been able to catch up on some of our rent thanks to the generosity of listeners uh, in recent weeks as, as we and other uh, programmers have uh, urged you to support this station. But we, we still need to raise a little bit more money. We need to get ahead of the rent. And uh, um, also just want to say, you know, at the starting in 2023, WBAI and the other uh, Pacifica network stations will once again uh, be receiving funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. They've been cut off from that for several years. That's coming back, but we have to get through 2022 with your support at 212-209-2950. Or give the number to WBAI.org. That's 212 2950 or give the number to wbai.org. Eat in once this month. Donate it to BAI. That's all I can say. 212 209 2950. And quickly, before we head to our exciting third segment, I want to mention for those of you who are listening that our last music break was a song from The Clash's fourth album called The Magnificent Seven. And the name of that album is Sandinista. And it is, in fact, named after the Sandinista 
Sandinista National Liberation Front in Nicaragua. And uh, this song touches on the endless cycle of work and consumption that the Sandinistas were fighting against. And today is the 43rd anniversary of that Sandinista revolution. So I just wanted to mention that. Yes, that was an exciting time for for people who were around then and and all the hope that brought. And uh, obviously ran into a lot of tragedy when the Reagan administration uh, sought to destroy that revolution in the 1980s, but um, it, there was it was definitely an incredibly uh, powerful moment where another uh, mass uh, uprising took place and, and people uh, saw an opportunity to build a, a new and, and better society and, and, and gave everything they could to uh, make that happen. Um, and so now we're going to turn to our uh, final segment for this evening. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, the most powerful court in New York that very few people uh, have paid much attention to. Of course, we talk a lot about the U.S. Supreme Court and all the terrible rulings that have come out of there uh, recently. Um, But uh, New York's uh, Supreme Court has also taken a conservative turn in recent years. It's been stacked with Andrew Cuomo appointees. And uh, um, but that's there's now a, a chance to go in a different direction. Uh, the Chief Justice of the New York Court of Appeals, that's what this court is called. Uh, the, the, it's a seven-member court, and the Chief Justice, Janice DeFiori, an Andrew Cuomo appointee, uh, announced she would be stepping down uh, last week. Uh, the news was unexpected. She still had more than three years left on her term. The court is uh, divided three to three, or it's divided four to three right now in favor of a conservative block, but DeFiori was a member of that conservative block and she's now leaving. So there's a chance for the court to go in a different direction. And also our, our, uh, our next guest, uh, uh, Matthew Thomas, uh, he's looked into uh, misconduct by another justice, uh, Madeline Singus, who was appointed uh, last year by Cuomo in the dying days of his administration. And he's been closely tracking her career and, uh, what he says are her many uh, misdeeds and is urging uh, the state legislature to consider impeaching her and uh, creating another opening on the Supreme Court. So we want to hear all about this. And uh, Matthew, uh, thank you so much for joining us. He's the author of the Vulgar Marxist uh, Newsletter. Thank Welcome you for to the me. show. Thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, so we're going to want to talk more about the Supreme Court and the role, important role it plays in New York, or I'm sorry, the Court of Appeals and the important role it plays. But can you talk, first of all, about Madeline Singus and, and what uh, new revelations you've come up with from uh, burrowing into her uh, financial reports and other information uh, that wasn't uh, widely available when she uh, uh, was uh, confirmed for the court last year? Um, yeah, so Madeline Singus is a career prosecutor. She began her career in the Queens District Attorney's Office, uh, eventually moved to the Nassau County District Attorney's Office, and she worked her way up, was a senior prosecutor in that office for a number of years um, under Kathleen Rice. And then after Kathleen Rice ran for Congress and was elected to a congressional seat out in Nassau County, Madeline Singus um, was elevated to acting district attorney in 2015, and she ran for full term and was elected to a full term in her own right in that year, in 2015, um, and was reelected thereafter. Um, and she was ran and reelected as a Democrat and 
won by significant margins, um, despite, you know, the sort of the waxing and waning fortunes of Democrats in Nassau County. Um, as a prosecutor, she pursued tough on crime policies, a very aggressive approach to prosecution um, in terms of uh, the level of charges that she would pursue um, and that sort of thing. And so when she was nominated for an opening on the Court of Appeals in 2022 by former Governor Andrew Cuomo, uh, a lot of people on the left objected to her nomination owing to her very aggressive history of prosecution and the way that she sort of approached her job as district attorney of, of Nassau County. And so there was a lot of resistance to her nomination. Um, but unfortunately, there was not enough will in the state Senate, which has to confirm the governor's nominees to the court to resist her. And so she um, has been on the court for the past a year now. Um, and in that time, she has established herself as one of the members of the conservative block of four, four conservative judges that have really pushed the court in a more right-wing direction. Right. And what, what did you uh, find uh, that you shared uh, yesterday can, uh, on your, on your, uh, on your uh, newsletter? Uh, and of course you broadcast across social media and other outlets as well. But can you summarize the the main, uh, I guess, revelations that uh, your investigation found? Totally. So a lot of the objections to Singas have focused on her, um, sort of the policies that she pursued as Nassau DA. But one thing that's sort of gone undercovered a little bit is, um, you know, whether or not she's been forthcoming in terms of uh, the disclosure of her financial assets. Um, elected officials in Nassau County are required to um, submit every year financial disclosure forms that document their assets, their liabilities, their conflicts of interest, so that the public can consult these forms and, and see if they're like, you know, what, types of interests, financial interests their elected officials have, and if there's any um, intersection with between those interests and the policies that they pursue in office. Unfortunately, Singus was nominated and confirmed in less than two weeks. She was brushed through um, by the governor with the complicity of the state Senate, and Nassau County does not make its the financial disclosure forms of its elected officials available online. And it took me six weeks to get uh, the the forms from them through uh, the freedom of information law that we have in New York. Um, but I did eventually get them. She was already on the court by that time, but I found that um, she did fail to disclose a number of assets that she had uh, mostly uh, real estate holdings owned by herself and her husband as and streams of rental income connected to those assets. Uh, mostly um, there's a two unit building in Astoria. That's actually her childhood home that she owns, co-owns with her sister that she rents out. Um, and then her husband owns a six unit um, rent stabilized building in Ridgewood, Queens uh, that they collect rent on as well. Um, in addition to that, her husband um, works for the shipping and e-commerce firm Pitney Bowes that does a lot of business with Nassau County agencies, um, including the district attorney's office, and she failed to disclose that relationship also. So basically, that you could interpret this as a, a violation of Article 18 of the general municipal law, which requires 
uh, elected officials to accurately uh, disclose their financial interests. Uh, that's a misdemeanor to violate that law. There would have to be an investigation to be conducted into whether or not she had personal knowledge or whether she did this intentionally or whether it was a mistake. Um, but that's kind of difficult to know. Now, the thing is, is that these documents are not sworn statements. So the, the prohibition against perjury does not come into play. Uh, Article 210 of the penal law, which deals with perjury, applies only if you make false statements on, on sworn statements or in sworn testimony in court. Now, Has she done that? Well, so when she, the way it works on the Court of Appeals is when, which is the highest court in the state, when there's a vacancy that opens up, um, people that are interested in filling it submit an application to this body called the Commission on Judicial Nomination. The commission reviews the applicant pool, selects a shortlist of finalists, and sends that shortlist to the governor, who must select his nominee from among that list. And one element of the application is a sworn financial statement. And so one thing that we didn't know was whether or not she made these omissions and these misrepresentations, the ones that she made on her Nassau County forms, did she do the same thing when she applied to the Commission on Judicial Nomination? Um, I've been trying uh, to get that document uh, for a long time. Uh, finally, the executive chamber responded to my freedom of information law request uh, back in May, and they gave it to me. And in fact, she made all of those omissions and more. And so, um, yeah, basically concealing uh, her financial interests, concealing her ownership of these rental properties, rent stabilized rental properties, which are directly relevant to her job as a judge on the Court of Appeals because of how often the court is asked to weigh in on matters impacting tenants and landlords. And so uh, this is really an it's a classy felony to, pro to provide false information on a sworn financial statement. So I think this is really strong evidence that, you know, one of the members of the court's right-wing block committed felony perjury during her own confirmation proceedings to sit on that court. Right. And how would you like for the state legislature to respond uh, to these alleged felonies that you've documented? I mean, I think that they should. Uh, it's. A, I mean, there there's a, a reason based on merit and then one based on politics to impeach her and remove her from the court. I mean, there's a number of different avenues. You, there could be complaints filed against her with the Commission on Judicial Conduct. This is the entity that was just looking into De Fiori and which forced her out basically for um, some misdeeds that she's reported to have done. So there can be complaints filed there. There can be complaints filed with the Grievance Board of the 10th Circuit, um, which covers Nassau County um, with DA's offices. So there's a few avenues to pursue there, but those can take a long time, in my opinion. Um, there's more than enough evidence to to for those state senate if it were interested to impeach and remove her from the bench um just on the merit i mean we need to have the public needs to have confidence in the judiciary it's difficult to have confidence in the judiciary if they you know obviously lie and, and subvert the law in public um, and refuse to disclose conflicts of interest um so i think that there's a reason based on merit and then also of course based on politics that you know we have a four to three conservative majority on the highest court in the state, and there's been a lot of great reporting done by New York Focus in particular, which sort of documents this, you know, the rulings that have been coming down over the past uh, several years um, from this conservative majority, which have been in favor of, of landlords, of police, of prosecutors, and 
And so there's a real chance to move in a different direction. If we could get, you know, now that DVR is off, if we could get Zingas off too, um, there's a real chance to sort of claw back the court from this right-wing majority. And so let's pivot to the Court of Appeals itself, Matt. How has it moved in a conservative direction in recent years? Um, well, it used to actually have a liberal majority. So um, from 2009 to 2016, the chief judge was a guy named Jonathan Littman. Um, and this was at a time he was appointed by former Governor David Patterson. This was at a time when you had a lot of judges that were appointed pre-Cuomo, basically. Um, and the court issued a number of, uh, I, in the piece, I look specifically at, at Tenant, pro-tenant rulings, um, protecting rent-stabilized leases from bankruptcy proceedings, allowing uh, tenants to pursue over, uh, rent overcharges in court, um, uh, protecting um, tenants from various abuses by their landlords. In recent years, as the court has moved to the right, they've they've gone in the pro-landlord direction. So in 2019, the state legislature passed a big rent reform package. Uh, the conservative majority struck down a key element of that, which would have allowed um, tenants um, who were the victims of fraud in, in some way to pursue damages extending back, you know, for as long as the fraud has been perpetrated. The, the conservative majority limited it to a period of four years. So essentially cutting off, um, you know, years of damages that were that were done to people that they can no longer pursue in court. Um, they also allowed broker fees to come back. Those were eliminated um, in the in the rent reform package and 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 were restored. And so unfortunately, you know, they're they're looking out for. And then of course, there's um, there's also been a dramatic reduction in the number of appeals from criminal defendants that have been heard. Uh, the court at least would used to hear and entertain uh, a much greater number of, of those types of appeals that have just dramatically fallen off, uh, you know, with the influence in particular of of these former prosecutors, both Singus and DeFiori are former district attorneys, very aggressive ones. And so, um, you know, these are, there's a lot of decisions that have been coming down recently that are reflective of, of a quite conservative politics that is out of step with this, with, you know, what most people in this state would prefer. And talk, can you talk a little bit about the Court of Appeal ruling on redistricting recently? Oh, yes. Yeah. So um, a few years ago, which I don't want to get into the details of like the all the process that led to this moment, but basically the state legislature passed a set of maps for the U.S. Cong- congressional districts and also the state legislative districts um, a- after the census, as they do every 10 years. Uh, these districts were drawn to be favorable for Democrats, obviously, um, and it was expected that the court would uphold them, um, even though a lot of uh, are all at the time, or six of the seven had been appointed by Andrew Cuomo. Um, it was expected that, you know, they would, they would, uh, uphold the, the, uh, the maps that were put through. And even under the law, even if you're like me and you believe that like the law is just politics by other means, like the, even the letter of the law seemed to, to indicate that there's no reason to overturn these districts. But yet the court took a very aggressive stance through the map, throughout the maps that the legislature had drawn and appointed 
a special master to redraw them. So as a result, Republicans are going to have like five more seats in Congress than they would have otherwise. And this was, was shocking that the court would take such an aggressive remedy, um, upon, you know, outsourcing this job to just a person that they randomly picked, I believe from Carnegie Mellon University. Um, very aggressive ruling contemplated nowhere in the state constitution or in any uh, statutory law. And so and what's funny about that is that a few days before that ruling came down, Andrew Cuomo wrote an editorial in the Daily News urging them to, to rule exactly in that way. Um, and so what that shows is that a lot of his, you know, lackeys are still, you know, he still exercises, unfortunately, from beyond the grave, a big influence uh, over over the politics in New York. Right. He tried to uh, have uh, Janice DiPiori uh, uh, appointed to be sort of the, the co-investigator with uh, Tish James <laughs> into his uh, sexual harassment uh, accusations. Uh, fortunately, that got shot down. But uh, we have to go very, uh, very quickly. I mean, I think we have about maybe another 30 seconds here. But just real quickly, y- your thoughts on how uh, the, the Court of Appeals is mimicking our U.S. Supreme Court with these sort of capricious uh, rulings. Uh, uh, these power grabs, and how much will is there in the state legislature to replace DeFiori with a, a progressive uh, chief justice so we can see well, this go in a different direction? But I, try to make, I try to make the case in my piece that I, I think it's unlikely that the um, – the chief judge exercises a lot of influence over the jurisprudence of the court and Hochul will want somebody in that role that is not going to allow things to go too far to the left. And so she appointed earlier this year, a just judge named Shirley Troutman, who's kind of like a moderate liberal. Um, I think she'll want to go even more conservative than that, just to make sure that, you know, the, the Littman court cost her donors a lot of money a few years ago when it was doing all these uh, pro tenant rulings avoid that but i make the case you know in the piece that if you want if she wants to get out from under cuomo's shadow and and to sort of um have her own term as governor that she should get these people out of there who are trying to sabotage her agenda no matter what and put in some judges that are not going to be afraid to play institutional hardball and get aggressive about purging his influence from from the judiciary so i i hope that she at least uh is persuaded by her own self-interest um but i i worry that she is uh too captured by the interests of capital to to listen right well We'll have to leave it there, but uh, Matthew Thomas, uh, author of the Vulgar Marxist Newsletter, we thank you for joining us once again on the Independent News Hour. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. So uh, that uh, wraps it up for today's show. I thank uh, Reggie Johnson, our board operator, and uh, uh, Amba, uh, what's the um, uh, musical outro for today? Today we leave you with Summertime Sadness by Lana Del Rey. <laughs>